Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg. Today, we're talking about death. The pandemic forced many families to reckon with surprising and swift losses. Most people were not prepared for those losses, and many people had to say goodbye to loved ones over video chat, if time even allowed. It's really hard to talk about death. It's perhaps even harder to talk about end-of-life care, post-mortem wishes, wills, and estate planning. This hour on Forum will provide a guide for starting those conversations, as well as what they should cover and why they're important. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Mina Kim this morning. The pandemic has revealed just how unprepared most of us are for death, for the end. So many families could not be by the bedside holding hands with their loved ones when the time came. And that reality has really been a wake-up call for all of us. So today we're going to talk about death so that our final moments alive are spent exactly how we want them to be. And we're joined by an excellent panel, uh, Dr. Sunitha Puri. She's the medical director in palliative care at Keck Hospital and Norris Cancer Center at UCS, USC. And she's also the author of That Good Night, Life in Medicine in the 11th Hour. Good morning, Dr. Puri. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And Liza Hanks, she's an attorney and author of The Family's Guide to Wills and Estate Planning. She's also the host of the podcast Women and Wills, which I will need to tune into soon. Uh, good morning, Liza. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And Michael Hebb, he's the author of Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. Good morning, Michael. Hi, Leslie. Great to be here. So in prepping for the show... I realized reading all of the deep research that all of you have done on this topic that I have thought very little about the end and I know very little about what I want. So I thought just to seed the conversation, I'd love for each of you just to name one or two things that you know you want to happen right at the end. And Dr. Puri, can you start us off? Certainly. This is something that I think a lot about just given the patients that I see every day and the situations that they're in. And I know that at the end of my life, I would want prayers for my religious tradition to be chanted. And I would want to be somewhere in nature if I could, to be outside at the moment that it happens. Liza? You know, there's a game out there called Go Wish, which I wanted to bring into this conversation, which lets you um, use cards that have different values and sentences, and you can kind of pick out the ones that are most important to you for, for planning for the end. And the one I picked was, um, I want to maintain my sense of humor. <laughs> but, you know, when you drill down into that, it means I want to be comfortable. 
I want to be at home. I want to be with the people that I love, you know? And I think that, uh, I don't think about it enough either, by the way, that's a very human thing to do. I was surprised to learn as I was researching again, that 75%, including myself, do want to, do want to end up at home at the end, but only 25% of them do. So we'll get into why that happens. But, uh, Michael, for you, what do you know you want to happen at the end? Yeah, well, I'm going to extend this a little bit to after I die, because the decisions we make and communicate about how we want to be memorialized and honored have a huge impact on our family and friends that will be grieving and going through a difficult time. And so for me, it's very important, and I'd like to share this with everyone, to provide clarity around what should happen. And I'll just focus on one Um, specific thing, what happens to my body? Um, And I know I want to be cremated. And I know that I want to be turned into these beautiful stones. There's an organization called Parting Stones that turns cremated remains into something that you can hold and is beautiful, and you can distribute. Um, And it gives people an option, an an ability to grieve meaningfully and have a meaningful action. And I think that's essential. Not surprisingly, all of you have thought about this much more (laughs) than I have. So thank you for all of those beautiful ways that that I hope unfold for all of you. Dr. Puri, you wrote an article really early in the pandemic. Kind of you saw the writing on the wall. This was a New York Times article called It's Time to Talk About Death. This was March of 2020. So we were just all going into lockdown. Who is Joseph, the character that you wrote about? And what did he teach you? So Joseph, which is a pseudonym, was a patient that I cared for in the throes of the pandemic, who, um, you know, was really kind of a remarkable person and his family was truly remarkable as well. And I think that, you know, he, among my many patients, kind of reinforced to me the importance of thinking clearly about what you would want for yourself if you're very sick, because it's not only the person who is suffering, it is also very much the family who suffers when they are not exactly sure how to advocate or how to be the voice of their loved one. And I think his story was yet another example of how our very well-intentioned medical system does not always support patients and families in having these discussions in a timely manner. And I think that that's something that the medical system very much needs to address. Do you feel like both the medical system and most families probably are more interested in surviving than actually facing the inevitable? And did you see that this year? Certainly. So I think from a physician's perspective, from the beginning of medical school, we are socialized Um, acculturated really into the system of Western medicine with the goal being to extend life at all costs. And that's sometimes not something we're even consciously aware of, but it plays out time and again in our medical practice across specialties. So I very much think we are socialized to do that and that we look at death I'm using we very broadly. Obviously, this doesn't apply to every physician, but I think generally death is seen as a failure and an enemy when actually there will never be a cure for mortality. Um, Similarly, I think patients and families really struggle to grapple with the end of life in part because I think we live in a culture where death generally is seen as a failure 
And we exist in this toxic binary of either fighting or giving up. And I think there's so much more nuance to these conversations and people's wishes. And I think that unfortunately, when both the public generally and physicians generally exist in a space where survival is paramount, we kind of lose the nuance around what quality of life looks like, what suffering looks like, what it means to live meaningfully, no matter how much time you have. And so I think these are the necessary challenges culturally and even linguistically when we have these conversations about what it means to live well. And living well goes on right until the time of death. Michael, you've been advocating for having these conversations for a really long time, more than 20 years. You've written a book dedicated to the subject. Why should these conversations start over dinner? Well, typically, we're confronted with these conversations when there's a crisis um, and not before. Um, The way that we've structured it is we end up talking about our goals of care, our um, advanced care directives, our end-of-life wishes, Um, when there's a medical emergency or crisis, someone's in the ICU, um, or when we're talking to an attorney or an insurance agent. Um, I'm not very comfortable in an attorney's office. Um, I'm not very comfortable talking to a doctor when there's a medical crisis. I'm not thinking with my whole person. I tend to be in a reactive mode. And um, if we're giving if we give ourselves and our community and our friends the gift of having these conversations in a relaxed setting in a setting that we choose is really important, not just a situation we're reacting to, but that we have the agency to say, yeah, I want to have that conversation and think about these things over dinner or over a walk in the woods or a long car ride, something where you know, it can be a beautiful conversation and they are beautiful conversations. Um, And we learn so much about ourselves and each other. And then we've communicated what matters to us and what our wishes are. And that communication creates advocacy. It creates people in our lives who know what we want and they know how to stand up for ourselves and get our wishes honored at the end and when we die. And that's a key thing for for everybody concerned. It actually helps doctors immensely to have well-educated advocates um, surrounding a loved one in the ICU. And I imagine it also helps lawyers to have these things clarified. So, Liza, from your perspective, what are the logistical details that should potentially be unfolding in those conversations, hopefully walks in the woods, et cetera. But what, what should people, what are the major details that people should be clarified, should have clarity on coming before they come and talk to you? Right. Well, I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> and certainly um, I, I gently tease my clients on a regular basis because they often say, well, you know, if I die, and I sort of point out that it's a hundred percent sure that they're going to die and that having a conversation with an attorney where you're really dropping down into the reality of what we're talking about instead of staying on the surface and talking about, say, taxes or your checkbook um, is a really important thing. And it's, I think it's an opportunity that a lot of lawyers miss because we're technically trained as well to focus on the transfer of property. And yet without these conversations, I don't think the plans that we draft are going to be effective. And to answer your question, um, there are two 
critical documents that people should have in place for incapacity, right? So durable power of attorney for finance and an advanced healthcare directive. And these documents allow you to appoint people called agents to act on your behalf, either when you sign the documents or more commonly when you're not able to make decisions for yourself, you know, either financial or medical. And without these documents in place, you're really at a disadvantage if you do end up you know, in the hospital or unable to act for yourself because without the legal authority to be your agent, no one's going to be able to pay your bills. No one's going to be able to get information about your health care from doctors and nurses. You know, nobody's going to be able to advocate for you effectively in the hospital. So those two documents are super important for incapacity. And then wills and trusts, you know, have more to do with the transfer of property and the management of property after you pass away. But a living trust in our state um, is also something that comes into play if you lose capacity. Um, a successor trustee can manage your big assets for your benefit as well. So just to, just to add to what Sunita and Michael have said, you can have the conversations, but without the legal documents in place, you won't be able to help the people that you love um, in a meaningful way. We're talking about how to prepare for, obvious, our inevitable death. 100% of us are going to die, as Liza just said. We're talking with Dr. Sunitha Puri. She's the medical director in palliative medicine at Keck Hospital and Norris Cancer Center at USC. With Liza Hanks, she's an attorney and author of The Family's Guide to Wills and Estate Planning. And Michael Hebb, he's the author of Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. We want to hear from you. Have you tried to have a conversation about death with a loved one. How did that conversation go? Is there a conversation you wish you would have had before it was too late? Maybe has the pandemic inspired you to make an end of life plan with a loved one? How was that process? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back. We're talking about how to prepare for death, especially in light of the pandemic and how so many families were unprepared for those final moments. And we're joined by Dr. Sunitha Puri. She's a medical director in palliative medicine at the Keck Hospital and Norris Cancer Center at USC. Liza Hanks, she's an attorney and the author of The Family's Guide to Wills and Estate Planning. And Michael Hebb, he's the author of Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. And we want to hear from you. So give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at kqed.forum. Or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Our experts can answer your questions about how to make 
an end-of-life plan, or maybe you can share a story from the pandemic about what happened to you and your family as you were going through a hard time, or maybe how you have made a plan because you're inspired by the pandemic. I want to hear, Michael, just your general take. You've dedicated so much of your time to this subject. Why is it so important to take the time to get really clear on the end? Well, I mean, there are thousands of reasons, but let's start with um, why it matters to us personally um, and in and, and each one of us. And this conversation about our mortality, um, about the fact that we die, and about what we are going to do with the rest of our time here is an essential part of every wisdom tradition, religious tradition, um, and it it has been an essential part of culture for so long. Um, and we over-medicalized death and moved it away from us. Um, and so we weren't in a, in a real relationship, um, have lost the real community relationship and personal relationship to our mortality in so many cases. And I consider it one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful medicines itself, just the conversation, because it really does communicate and reveal um, what is most important to us, what brings our life meaning, and what we need to do or want to do with the rest of our time here. Um, and those are essential gifts. There are a lot of crises um, that we are dealing with in our current culture. And one of them is a real lack of meaning and a real lack of purpose, the lack of why am I here? And having this conversation really does reveal and give us that gift. Um, it's also just a tremendous gift to our loved ones um, to have these clear conversations. They'll know how to take care of us at the end of our life, and they'll know how to grieve us meaningfully. And people will grieve longer and in a deeper way and in a more complicated and painful way if they don't have these clear instructions from us. So there's a lot of reasons, those are just a couple. No, it makes perfect sense. Well, let's go to a caller. Denora, you're on the air in Los Angeles. Hi. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Um, you know, it's just so, I'm a physician, I'm an intensivist. And so just hearing you guys talk about the most important things for our patients, an intensive care unit in the middle of a pandemic, I mean, this last whole year, it's exactly what you guys, we wish we would have had and what I always wished my patients would have had. And unfortunately, you know, the majority of our patients coming into the ICU don't have uh, the opportunity or don't think about the opportunities they have when they're well and not sick in an ICU. And, you know, one thing that stuck out the most of, of a comment that you guys made was that uh families or, or feel like their loved ones are like a failure at the end of life, right? That they stop fighting. Mm. And that just hit home because I can't say how many times family members use that term. They're a fighter. They're a fighter. They're a fighter. And it doesn't mean that they're giving up, right? It just means that this is end of life. And I, we wish that families have had those conversations so that we can allow their their last days on this life uh, or on this world or last moments in this world the way they would have wanted to lift them. 
How was it in the ICU, especially during, I mean, you were in Los Angeles during the surges, etc., having families make these decisions in such chaotic times? It was awful. I mean, the experience that uh, on the healthcare side, I can't imagine from the family side. I mean, in the middle of the beginning of the surges, we were having these conversations over the phone. I mean, we had to call families to let them know that their loved ones were dying and asking them questions regarding, you know, if if they could have told you, because most of them didn't know how they wanted to pass away, whether that was on, you know, life support or not. Those were the conversations we were having over the phone. These conversations are difficult face-to-face. Just imagine over the phone. Tragic. Well, Denora, thank you so much for calling in, and thank you for the work that you're doing in the pandemic. Thank you. Let's go to Lori in Concord. Lori, you're on the air. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I have kind of a, a complex question, and I'm a mental health provider, so um, it's been a really interesting time to deal with, you know, the pandemic. I actually lost my brother-in-law um, Sorry. to COVID in very much the situation that, that we're kind of discussing without a plan. And in the interim, have been dealing with um, aging parents, father who just passed away in, in July, hospice, and a mother who has dementia. And here's my question. So, Let's say you've gone through and you've done this end-of-life planning, and you've said, right, I don't want to live uh, when, I, when I lose my mind and I don't know who you are. Um, when I would have this conversation with, you know, kind of right-minded, and it's not the right word, but, you know, but, but where, where I know that the, the essence of my parents was present, right? And now, as they move into this state where they don't remember and they don't know and you know, these things. And then they say, well, I want to live. I want to live. I want to live. And so we've worked with hospice workers and social workers, and they didn't have the right documentation in place. But I'm curious, because now I do, and I'm curious from your experts, what would you do with the situation where now, let's say I did start to lose some of my mental faculties. I very clearly had that documentation, but as a hospice worker or a social worker is standing over my bed, that does my advocate really have the ability to do that? Or are they going to look at that and go, no, she's saying she she wants to live? Uh, Liza, can you take that? Or, or is that better for Dr. Puri? Uh, let's start with Liza, and then let's go to Dr. Puri. Okay. Well, first of all, that's such an awful situation to be in. Um And it's a complicated answer. I wish I had a clearer one. But, you know, under the law, if a a person is able to understand the risks and benefits of medical treatment, you know, they do have the right to make their own decisions about their health care. In a case where capacity is um, in question and somebody isn't thinking clearly, you know, that's when it's difficult to make a decision about when an agent is able to step in for somebody and make a decision, right? Because it's, un, you know, you have to be, certainly we don't want to take away somebody's right and their uh, autonomy and their agency to make their own healthcare decisions. And so I would say it's partly a legal question and partly a medical question. Um, but there are also advanced healthcare directives 
the, where you can talk about care for dementia, you know, so where your body is strong, but your mind is gone, you know, whether you want antibiotics or whether you want treatment to, to, to treat your body if you don't no longer have uh, your own cognition. And I wanted to encourage people to take a look if they're interested in the, a book called The Art of Dying Well by Katie Butler, where she talks about this in some detail. Um, and I hope that from a legal perspective, again, if, you, if you're able to make your own decisions and your healthcare directive is not effective until you can't, then you still get to make those decisions. If you don't have capacity, then I would think your agent does have the right to step in. And I'm going to toss this over to Sunita for the medical side. Thank you so much. And I want to echo what Liza said, that I'm truly sorry that you are in this situation. It's a very tough one. And I have seen it time and again, both in the hospital and when I see patients in my clinic when they're not hospitalized. I think um, I want to echo the, the thought that capacity and determining whether somebody truly comprehends and can repeat back to you the risks, benefits, and alternatives of any treatment offered, that's what constitutes uh, true capacity to make decisions. But I wanna move beyond that to a statement that you mentioned, which is, I want to live. And I think when we as loved ones or we as physicians hear that, what we assume is that we then have to do quote unquote, everything possible because the person wants to live. And the way I approach this is that of course, somebody wants to live and survive. That I think is the mutual goal of doctors and patients and their families. But then it requires a deeper exploration of what that means. So people wanting to live, what does that actually mean to them? Tell me what a good life is for you. Tell me what you're afraid of. Tell me what you're hoping for. We all know that you want to live. And my concern for you is helping you to live well. I think that statement of I want to live or I want to do everything or I'm a fighter or I want a miracle. I think this is language that needs to be probed to get to a deeper understanding of what somebody is asking for. And in my experience, sometimes people saying, I want to live and I don't want to die, that in and of itself is not a decision, if that makes sense. Definitely. That's reflective of an outlook or a fear or grief. And I think we need to plumb the meaning of statements like that, just as we have to plumb the meaning of people saying, I want everything done. And I think this is where conversations can sometimes stop because we hear statements like this and we assume that this person wants everything we have to offer. And I think that assumption is a dangerous one. Wouldn't this also underscore the need to have these conversations early and fairly regularly throughout your life? Because things may change but we could all go suddenly right at the end. So how early do you recommend having these conversations, Dr. Puri? So I recommend that at the time that somebody has been diagnosed with a serious illness, and I define serious illness as one that at some point will take somebody's life or one that will devastate their quality of life, 
um, either immediately or in the near future. So that's kind of my approach. And the American Society for Clinical Oncology, for example, um, their position is that at the time of diagnosis of a serious cancer, that palliative care should be involved from the beginning to help with these conversations. The other thing I think is important, and you raised an important point, Susie, which is that wishes change just as life evolves or as life with a disease evolves. And so I like to think of these discussions as ongoing. And when we're having them with our, lo with our loved ones, you shouldn't feel pressure to cover everything in one conversation. Walking with somebody who is seriously ill is a journey. And so, and I think physicians have an important role to play as well in these conversations because asking patients and families to make serious decisions about things like a ventilator or CPR requires physicians and other healthcare workers to really help people understand the medical context in which they're making decisions. So for example, a ventilator for somebody who got in a car accident and who we expect to come off the ventilator soon is very different than somebody with stage four cancer in the ICU on a ventilator. And so I think shared decision-making throughout the time somebody's living with a disease is super important so that these decisions are not made in a vacuum, but rather in an explained clinical context. Thank you for that, Dr. Puri. Uh, let's go to a comment from Richard. He says, my parents have not only provided me with copies of their wills, they've also pointed me to the document that has their passwords, the files that contain the obituaries that they wrote for themselves and their wishes for their funerals. And they have spent the last few years paring down their possessions. They're in their late 80s. And on one hand, this is a little upsetting to confront their deaths, but it's also the best gift that they could have given me and my siblings. And Rosie, on that note, also writes, Just this afternoon, I have an appointment with my attorney to finalize my trust documents, including power of attorney. I put this off for years because the thought of me dying pissed me off. I've had to work through a lot of feelings and fears I never wanted to face. I still don't like it, but I'm going to feel a lot better after getting all of my ducks in a row. So good luck with that appointment. Uh, Rosie, I'd like to go back to callers. Uh, let's hear from Mina in Petaluma. Mina, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. I, I, I wanted to call in because my, my dad had a massive stroke um, about last year, November. And afterwards, my brother and I, we circled, you know, together around him to help him get his advanced directive, the trust. And while my dad had, had did some rehabilitation, um, he recently um, went into hospice in August and then passed away. But the fact that we had all that paperwork for him really gave us the freedom to be with him. Mm. And then it gives you the freedom to grieve your parents or your loved one. And there's a great book called The Beginner's Guide to the End by B.J. Miller, Dr. B.J. Miller, I believe you guys have interviewed him in the past. Mm. It helps both the caregiver and the person that is also experiencing the end of life. So that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Thank you, Mina, so much for coming on the air and sharing your experience with us and offering good advice in this moment. Very much appreciated. Let's go to Mona in Hayward. Mona, I think you might have a question. I do. Um, you sort of covered the uh, process of dementia 
and I do have a directive. I do have a trust. I've told everyone I know that if I should have dementia, my quality of life is very important, and I would rather end my life early rather than go through all that process. Now, I know the state of California currently doesn't allow you the, quote, cocktail unless you have a disease that will you probably will die within six months. How do you get around that? Because I could, I know through family that dementia can go 10 years, and I would rather not do that. How do I go about saying, end it early, get it over with? Liza? Do you, have- you know, I was really thinking you were going to ask me to answer that question. <laughs> I don't have the answer to that question, so I'm hoping you have the answer to that question. Well, you know, I guess my answer to that question is a lot of people feel the same way as our caller, and that it's a very scary proposition to feel that you don't have the power to end your own life in a way that makes sense to you. But I have to say, as an attorney, um, the, the law in California, the right to die law, does put a lot of restrictions on people's ability to end their life. It is not appropriate for a lot of people. You know, by the time they get to the point where they would like their lives to end, they're not able to self-administer the drugs in question. So I will leave it as I don't have a good answer. You know, the law is trying to protect people. And we don't have a perfect answer to that question, to be honest. Um, Perhaps Michael or Sunita want to speak to that as well. We'll come back to to maybe touching on that a little bit more with Dr. Puri after the break. That's Dr. Sunitha Puri. She's joined she's joined by um, both Liza Hank and Michael Hebb. We're talking about how to prepare for death, and we want to hear from you. Have you tried to talk about death with your loved ones? How did those conversations go? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or on Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or shoot us an email at forum at kqed.org. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back. We're talking about how to prepare for death. 
with Dr. Sunitha Puri. She's medical director in palliative medicine at the Keck Hospital and Norris Cancer Center at USC. With Liza Hanks, she's an attorney and author of Everybody's Guide to Estate Planning in California and the Trustee's Legal Guide. And Michael Hebb, he's the author of Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. And we've gotten a stream of calls, so let's just go directly to the phone lines. Uh, Donna, please go ahead. You're in Berkeley. You're on the air. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to um, touch base on what you were talking about, about having conversations with your family members around the dinner table. Um, I had a very uh, big revelation about 10 years ago when I was backpacking with my then adult um, sons about how I wanted my remains to be taken care of. And we were backpacking and I just you know, as we were backpacking, one of my favorite things to do, I thought to myself, I want to be cremated and I want my ashes to be spread by my sons on a backpacking trip once I'm gone. And, um, you know, that was a very big thing for me to realize for myself and how, you know, I wanted this to happen. And that night around at the campsite, I brought it up to them. And I really feel like they really understood that, um, how much it meant for us, the three of us, to be together, how it meant for them, what it meant for them to do, you know, um, you know, um, my wishes, you know, take place with that. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a sad and somber thing to talk about, but it was also something that they could really embrace. I felt very confident in what I said and how I felt, and I felt like they would want to do something that way, and it would make them, it would be very meaningful. So, I just feel that that's, you know, that just came up, but it wasn't pre-planned. But, um, you know, something like that, when you're just talk with your children in a way that is really meaningful to you and to them and how that can, you know, they'll remember that. And um, we've talked about it since. Beautiful, so Donna. The other thing, the other thing I, want, I wanted to, um, you know, I my parents are past. I have a brother who's past. I'm a, you know, a healthcare pro, retired healthcare professional in cancer uh, treatment. So, the other thing I wanted to, you know, I know how hard it is with all the finalization of wills and things like that and how, you know, hard it can be and how dysfunctional it can be. So I have already I have already set up a piece of paper for my sons. You know, I typed it up who, about who to call, you know, Social Security office, this office, that office. I think that really helps, too, and when, you know, Very it's all helpful. said and done. Um, for, you know, and I've told them where that piece of paper is, you know, um, passwords, things like that, just to ease their pain and ease all the confusion around who to deal with afterwards. It's such a difficult and trying time. And I know it's been very hard for me, you know, with. Beautiful, Donna. I think all of that, I'm sure, gives your kids a ton of security knowing that you're in good hands and that you've had those conversations. Ariana has an interesting question I'd like to go to. She says, I'm a single person with no children, and it's painful when I hear people talking about family at the end of death. I don't have any family. So what can your experts tell me? What documents do I need to fill out? Uh, Liza, do you have some advice for Ariana? I do. Ariana, as a single person, you are one who will benefit the most from putting these documents in place because you don't have, you know, sometimes spouses can kind of get access to information and make decisions, even though they're not legally authorized to do it. 
But when you're a single person, you really need to put together a power of attorney and advance directive so that good friends of yours would be able to help you pay your bills, help you make medical decisions. Um, and if you don't have people like that, so you know nieces, nephews, or good, good friends, um, there are people called professional licensed fiduciaries who serve in these capacities as well. They're licensed by the state of California. And I have plenty of clients who um, put them in their documents, uh, often for power of attorney for finance. Some of them will also serve um, as an agent under your healthcare directive. Others will hire care managers to take that role for you. So you really do need to have these documents in place, especially if you're single. And then in terms of a will or a trust or how you wanna leave your estate when you pass away, you know, again, maybe you want to benefit charities or friends or community organizations that have been meaningful to you. And you need to put that in writing so that it happens. So I hope that's helpful. And a listener tweets, I have metastatic, meta, yeah, metastatic, sorry, metastatic breast cancer, which is incurable and, I, and it will kill me in the foreseeable future. I have tried to have a conversation about my death with my husband, but while he is the best caretaker, I can have, he's not having it. And I've tried it. He just won't talk about death. Help. Michael, I'm curious if you can take this question. How would you advise this listener? Well, I think that what I've noticed, and I, I see it in the, um, the last caller, just I want to stop and underscore something. Um, I believe her name was Donna and how she brought the... Um, her wishes had a revelation and brought up the conversation to her kids. Um, and, and I find that that is often the route that these conversations go, um, that it's actually the person that's closest to death has, or older, or is thinking about it perhaps a bit more, has a bit more comfort around the conversation. And we often assume our parents don't want to talk about it um, if we have aging parents. And sometimes they don't, but I've, my, my mom's bridge circle um, talks about death all of the time, um, openly. <laughs> There's like a gallows humor about it, almost. And it's not the case in every community and every culture, um, for sure. But for the first thing is to not assume. Um, and our, the person that asked the question has actually done some work, and they're not making just assumptions. But don't assume that the people in your life don't want to have this conversation. Also, don't make it a should question. Don't make it the conversation. Um, no one wants to have the conversation about anything. Um, we need to, as much as we can, take away some of the pressure um, and add a little levity, um, but also take rejection in stride. Um, oftentimes when it comes to this conversation or this topic, if we hear the a rejection of any kind, even an implied rejection that the person doesn't want to talk about it or not interested in it, we'll assume that that's the last conversation we get to have with them about it, that that's a big capital no. And people, you know, I like to counsel people to be creative and almost treat it like a courtship or like they were looking for a job. Um, we're resourceful. We think about the person we're talking to. What are the things that matter to them? Are they... Mm -hmm. Are they interested in movies or literature? Is that a way in? We watch a movie together that might have some of these themes and topics. Um, is there an article I can share? Um, can you talk about what song you might want at the funeral? Or if you could just choose what your last meal would be, what would it be? Or 
there are routes in. So um, I would say be tenacity, you know, have some tenacity, um, take a rejection in stride, be creative. And, uh, and I bet you, you're going to find a way in. Some people just won't talk. And, <laughs> and that's so. just the way it is. I like the idea of peppering it in, especially with someone who is showing some kind of resistance. I have that with my mom, but maybe like you said, watch a movie, share an article. And along the way, I'll learn what she really wants. Let's go back to the phones. Uh, Yoav in San Francisco, you're on the air. Hey there, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I just I just wanted to share my story. You know, I'm a, a new father. We have a young son, and it was recommended that we set up our trust and wills, medical directives, all of that, and we did, which got me to asking, you know, my father, uh, if he had all this stuff set up, you know, he's, he's in his 60s, and he said that he didn't. And I said, well, you should, uh, which didn't go over well. Uh, but to your last, to the last conversation's point, you know, I kept asking and, and kind of, trying to find different ways uh, based on what he uh, cared about. And, and, you know, most recently we were talking about it and he was asking me about our lawyer and, you know, I'm hoping that he will get it sorted out because the last thing you want is for something unexpected to happen and then you have to figure it all out right then and there instead of having it written down. So just wanted to share my story. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. We appreciate that. Bridget writes, my oldest sister is in the last part of her life following a diagnosis of terminal lung cancer. Sorry to hear that, Bridget. This past weekend, I had a conversation with her about palliative and hospice care. And as most people I've had this conversation with, she shut down. How do we overcome the stigma of palliative hospice as only negative? Dr. Puri? I think this is an excellent question, and I want to acknowledge that the stigma exists not only with patients and families, but also within the medical profession. Um, I think of palliative care and hospice as agents of cultural change. And so part of what cultural change involves is being really clear about what we do and what we don't do. When I explain palliative care, I generally especially if somebody is going through cancer, what I try to offer my patients when I show up and they're nervous is just to say that my job and the job of palliative care is to be a quality of life doctor and team. And we do work in a team. And what that means practically, I tell people, is that I'm here to help minimize the symptoms and suffering you have as you get your cancer treatment so that you can live as best as you can as you're going through this. The other thing I do is help you and your family think about what's really meaningful in your life and what you want for yourself so that as you are faced with medical decisions, we keep who you are and what animates your life at the center of these decisions. And I think, you know, part of what I believe will lessen the stigma is to be really clear that there's not a choice between palliative care and and medical, other medical treatments, that palliative care can be offered right alongside things like chemotherapy or dialysis or heart failure treatments. And that hospice is a type of palliative care that we offer when we are parting ways with treatments that focus on a disease. And we then focus on the ways somebody experiences that disease and minimize pain and other sorts of suffering. I think the other thing that 
I have been thinking about for a while is how the general public, patients and families can advocate for palliative care. And I think one of those things is sharing your positive experiences because positive experiences, people sharing how palliative care and hospice made a huge difference in their family. Like one of the callers who spoke about her father dying from a stroke, those stories are what's going to lessen the stigma. And so the more we can speak out about them, in addition to having a way of explaining palliative care, I think the more we are going to do better for one of the most vulnerable patient populations we have, which is people who are dying. We're talking about how to prepare for death with Dr. Sunitha Puri, Liza Hanks, and Michael Hebb. You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm filling in today for Mina Kim. And Dave writes, my father had done a meticulous job planning for his death. And because of this, it was relatively easy to perform the duties of his advocate and the trustee of his estate. And in his advanced healthcare directive, he said he never wanted any machines or assistance to prolong his life. The hardest part was having to honor his wishes when I knew that violating them could give me several more years with him. So these are really challenging decisions, but really honoring. That's a very powerful thing to share, Dave. Thank you. And Kevin tweets, I'm currently struggling with the seemingly black and white DNR decision. Do your guests have any resources for teasing out legal wording along the lines of, if quality of life is like, then resurrect me, and it's going to be awful, don't do this. Liza, do you have any quick tips in terms of how to use the right language? Well, first I want to clarify that um, end-of-life decisions are different from a DNR, which is a medically binding order on, you know, like a EMT people who come to your home and it says, don't resuscitate me. With, uh, so that's a different document than the advanced healthcare directive, which is what I think the caller is trying to talk about, which is stating your end of life choices. Quickly, what I tell my clients is what we're looking for is general information about what you do or don't want at end of life, because there's so many different ways you can end up there that being specific will probably not be the thing that the decision has to, you know, like I say, if you say, I want to die on Wednesday in a black shirt, I guarantee you will be Thursday and you'll be wearing a blue shirt, you know? So we don't want to be that specific, but we want to give our loved ones comfort in knowing generally what we do or don't want at end of life. Let's go back to the phones. Nancy in Oakland, you're on the air. Nancy? Uh, it looks and like, oh, there she is. Nancy? End-stage Alzheimer's and end-stage COPD. Um, Nancy, I, I think you just, we lost you there for a second. Do you mind starting over? Sorry. So sorry. End-stage Alzheimer's and end-stage COPD. Uh, Nancy, I'm terribly sorry. I, our, the connection is not so good. She's looks like she, um, she lost her father, and she's trying to get her mom on board with what is really going on there. She's a nurse, and she thinks the doctors could have done a lot better job of explaining what was going to happen and how. So takes a team effort. Let's go to Mara in Mountain View. I'm sorry we lost you there, Nancy, but Mara, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Thank you for this program. Um, super important to talk about these things, I think. And I, I specifically wanted to ask a question about what is the age, what's age appropriate in terms of I have, a, I have an 11-year-old son. I'm, I had him when I was 42, so I'll be a lot older um, 
you know, when he's growing up, when he's, when he's, you know, making those decisions or helping to make those decisions. And uh, we've just gone through a few different people in our family who have had um, end of life experiences and, um, and the, so the, que- question the question is, yeah, the, when, when to talk to children? How yeah. old? When it's, yes. When, what's appropriate, age appropriate to talk to them about even documentation or what's going to happen and giving them an idea of what to expect. Beautiful. Liza. Good. There's lots of ways to talk to children in age appropriate ways all along the way about the reality of death and dying. And that really good piece of advice is answer the question your, your son is asking right? Um, I can also direct you to one of the podcast episodes I did was called talking about the hard stuff with a developmental psychologist. Um, But what she had to say was that kids are very aware of death, right? They see dead bugs, they see dead pets, their grandparents pass away. So not talking about death, you know, isn't really doing your son a service. Um, But of course, talking to him about, you know, having to make an end of life choice at 11 is probably too soon. Um, and he wouldn't be able to act for you legally until he's 18 anyway. Um, Michael probably has something helpful to say here as well, but generally I would say be honest about it. It's not for the, you know, I, I keep wanting to say in this call that, um, you know, issues of death and dying are not just for the old. I mean, any of us could walk out of this house today and not come back. And if this last year has taught us anything, it's that. So it's a conversation we should be having with each other all the time. Michael, we have about a minute in the show. So any final parting words, either on children or in general, on talking about death? Yeah, I think it applies to everyone, but I'll speak more generally about the conversation with children. Um, And I think the most important thing is to honor your child's curiosity um, and to not shut them down, which we will often do when a child brings up a topic that we find overwhelming and scary or that we're not resourced to talk about. Um, And I really like to tell parents to admit that and to admit that the conversation scares you, but you're willing to talk to your child about it and talk about the things that you know or don't know. Um, And that can be a really powerful way for all of us to just turn towards curiosity. Um, And I'll, I'll leave it at that since we're out of time. Beautiful way to end. Thank you all so much for joining us. We've been talking about how to prepare for death with Dr. Sunitha Puri, Liza Hanks, and Michael Hebb. Thank you all again. Have a great morning. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis from KQED Podcasts comes on our watch season two, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.